ahead and have a seat, and as you're getting settled in your seat, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to find one behind a seat nearby you, and uh, so I encourage you to get that, get God's Word open in front of you, and if you do not own a Bible, take that home with you. We would love for you to walk out of here with a copy of God's Word. That's our gift to you. Well, we're currently in the midst of a teaching series through this book of 1 Timothy, and we've called this the household of God. And it's very simple why we've called it that. It's because of the reason that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. He was very clear about why he wrote this letter. We find this right in the middle of the letter. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. He's talking to Timothy. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul's writing to him saying, Timothy, I'm writing this to give you instructions how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so today we're going to continue to learn more about what God's plan is for his church, for the flourishing and for the health of his church. But before we get into the text, I want to put a photo on the screen and tell me if you know who this is on the screen. Who is it? Mr. Rogers. It's Mr. Rogers. Like, everybody knows Mr. Rogers. Um, Mr. Rogers' television show, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, ran from 1968 to 2001. That's really amazing. And one of the interesting things about Mr. Rogers is that he never shied away from dealing with difficult things that were happening in the world. And he wanted to lean into those things because he wanted to help Uh, families to know how to cope with those things and how to talk to their children about those things. And he wanted children to know, help them to think about, how do I think about that when I see something scary on TV or when I see my parents nervous about something? Mr. Rogers often told this story about when he was a boy and he would see scary things in the news. He said, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. And he would in turn use that when something big had happened in the world, and he would say on his program, he'd say, children, look for the helpers. There's always helpers. I think that's great advice for us to this day. And, you know, God designed us as human beings made in his image to do life in community together. And we can't get through this life without helpers. We need helpers. And at different times in our lives, we need different types of helpers. So sometimes uh, we might need a helper because there's something that we can't physically do or we don't know how to do. We need a skill that somebody else has. As I think about this facility that we're meeting in here, this place couldn't happen if we didn't have a whole lot of helpers to help us get here. We didn't know the first thing about how to design a building, let alone build a building or prepare land or to get permits or to even talk to a bank about how do you finance something like this. The Lord brought so many helpers alongside us to make this place happen. Sometimes you might have a physical need, uh, either temporarily or long term, where you need a helper. Uh, uh, Two years ago, I had uh, double knee replacement surgery, and uh, my wife Beth was my helper because I literally did not have a good leg to stand on. So she would put a gate belt around me and help me get out of a chair and help me and keep me upright as I walked down the hallway with my walker. 
praise the Lord for that helper. Um, sometimes in, in situations of physical disaster hits and everything gets wiped out and we need the helpers. Medical, food, clothing, shelter comes in. We need helpers. And sometimes we need a helper when we just want to delegate something to somebody else so they could take care of something so that we can focus on something different. Um, when, when we were newly married, um, I loved taking care of our lawn. I loved getting out and mowing and trimming, and I would fertilize, and I loved having a, a great-looking lawn. But as our kids were born, our kids were young, I realized I'm spending multiple hours out here in the yard every week. And, and it kind of dawned on me, like, there are other people who are qualified to mow this lawn, in fact, better than I could, but there's no one else qualified to be father to my kids. And so we just decided as a family... Um, we, we, um, there was a young couple starting a lawn mowing business and we hired them and those helpers were a blessing to our family for over 20 years. Well, in today's passage, Paul is going to address a specific office in the church and that's the office of deacon. And if there's one word I could use to describe deacon, it would be the word helper. Now, deacons are oftentimes more than helpers, but they're never less than a helper. And I think that word helper really captures well the essence of this role of deacon. And so the main point of the message today that I hope to drive home is this. We'll put it on the screen. When deacons serve in the household of God, needs are met, the word is proclaimed, and the body is unified. And as we unpack that, I'm going to do it in three parts today. We're going to first by talk, start by talking about the role of a deacon. Then we're going to talk about the requirements of a deacon. And we're going to finish by talking about the rewards for a deacon. And so let's get our eyes on the text. We're in 1 Timothy 3, starting at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's pray for our time together here. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us instructions of how we, might, how we are to behave in the household of God. I pray that we would handle your word well, that we would steward well what you've entrusted to us, Lord. We know that your plan is the church. You're using the church for your glory. So we pray that everything we do would be about glory. Give us hearts to hear what you have for us today, Father. Teach us today, dear Lord, from your word. We thank you. We praise you. May you get all the glory in this. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to start today by talking about the role of the deacon, because as Paul writes this to Timothy, he says nothing about what a deacon does, um, as he knows that Timothy already knows what an elder is, and he knows what a deacon is. They've been setting up churches and starting churches and appointing elders and deacons, and so he doesn't need to explain to Timothy what a deacon is. He just gets right into the requirements. So we need to pause here as a church for a minute and talk about this role of the deacon and make sure that we have a common understanding. And I think this is particularly important because I'm going to presume that as a church body, that if you, we surveyed ourselves, we would, we would be all over the place in terms of what a deacon is. So based on your experience, you may have absolutely no idea 
or what a deacon is or no experience with that. Uh, Beth and I grew up in a United Methodist Church. We did not have deacons. We had committees, and we had a lot of committees. We didn't have deacons. Or you might have been in a church where the deacons were those who mowed the grass or fixed things in the church. Uh, maybe uh, did the budget or prepared food when there were, were functions in the church. Or you may have been a part of a church where the deacons really were the governing authorities within the church. There was a deacon board, there was a lead pastor and a deacon board, and the two didn't always get along. And the deacons had power, and, and, and that's the way it worked. And so we're all over the map in terms of what deacons are. And so they can't all be true, and we need to get a common understanding here. And I'm going to acknowledge right up front, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail about the role of deacon. It does give us some clues, however, and when we understand and embrace this beautiful role that the deacon is called to in the household of God, we're going to see the church flourish. So I'm excited about this. I'm excited to talk about deacons. So there's a couple things that we, we find out about deacons. And the first thing is this, and the role of a deacon, first of all, it's an office in the church. It's actually an office in the church. And and as we read the New Testament, God has ordained two offices in the church. One is the office of elder and overseer, and one is the office of deacon. And we see the first reference to this office in Paul's opening to his letter to the church in Philippi. So he opens the letter this way, in this way, in Philippians 1.1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So Paul opens this letter, he's greeting all of the people, all the saints at the church in Philippi, and then he calls out two groups, particularly the overseers or elders and the deacons. He calls the deacons out separate from the elders and separate from the all saints. And you combine that with this list of qualifications that we just read about from, from Paul to Timothy of who would serve as a deacon, and we draw the conclusion this clearly was an office in the very early church. The second thing we know about the role of deacons is it appears to be a service-focused role. The reason I say that is the Greek word that's translated today, deacon, is diakonos, and that word is used in both its noun and verb forms over a hundred times in the New Testament, and almost every time it's translated servant or minister. Okay, that's the core meaning, servant or minister. Let me give you an example of one of those. In John 12, 26, Jesus is speaking here. And Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we see the word serve or servant used three times there. Every time it's the form of that word diakonos. So this verse could literally be translated if anyone deacons me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my deacon will be also. If anyone deacons me, the Father will honor him. So the reason I share that is just as one example. There's multiple examples in the New Testament where this word is used, and it's translated servant or minister. And in those cases, it's used very broadly, and it's used to represent what all of us as members of the household of God, are called to do, to serve God and to serve others. So it's used in a very broad context. On a couple of occasions, it's used in a very narrow context to refer to a specific office in the church. One of those is that opening to the letter to the Philippians, and the other two times are in our, or the other couple of times are in our text today, where he's 
clearly referring to a specific office, and it seems to be a servant-focused role based on that core meaning of the word diakonos. And that's why I said at the very beginning that I feel like the word helper captures well what this role of deacon should be. And so, while the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail, there is a model that we find in the Bible for what this role of deacon might do and look like. And we find that in the book of Acts in the sixth chapter. So we don't usually do this here on a Sunday morning. We usually stay in the text we're at. But I'm going to ask you to hold your place there and turn to the left and go to Acts chapter 6. I think this is important enough that we all get our eyes on Acts chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to note a couple of things about the text we're getting to look at. We're going to, hear, we're going to see about these seven men that are called out for some specific service. Never are these seven men called deacons. I just want to say that right up front. They're not called deacons, but a form of that word deacon is used in this text here. And this is really seen as a good model of what would become the role of deacon in a church. And there's a couple things that we can learn from this. So let's, let's get our eyes on that. Um, if you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, all right, we're there. So let's go. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a, what's, what's that word there? A complaint. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, setting the, the context here, this is the early church. The early church. And there is an issue. One of the needy groups, in this case the, some of the widows, were not getting their daily distribution of food. Their needs were not being met. And so, um, a complaint arises. So, there's disunity right off the bat in the early church. Let's see what happens. Verse 2. And the twelve, and, and this is the twelve apostles, okay, the twelve, they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, Look at what the apostles said there in verse 2. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So what's going on here? Because that sounds kind of harsh. Like, we shouldn't be serving tables. That is not a statement of value or judgment of them being above serving, the table, serving tables. On the contrary, they see there's a significant issue happening in the church, and they're like, we got to address this. We're not going to ignore this and hope it goes away. We're going to address it. So we've got a plan. Let's identify seven people, seven men in this case, to address this need, which is a significant need, so that we as the apostles, and get this, this is super important, so that the apostles can subsequently focus on what they were uniquely called to do, which they say in verse 4, prayer and the ministry of the word. Now let's see what happens. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering... And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So they identify these seven, they bring them before the apostles, they lay hands, they pray, and they commission, go solve this issue. And then look at the beautiful outcome of what happens. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What a beautiful outcome of what started as disunity and started as a complaint. And look at what happens. And so as we reflect on that as kind of a model, an early model of this role of deacon, there's three things that I think were accomplished by those seven men that I want to highlight for us that I don't want to miss. The first one is, it's the obvious one, they met a tangible need. There was a need that widows were not being getting the distribution of the food. It needed to be resolved. The text doesn't even tell us if that got resolved. It's implied, apparently they did. They met a tangible need. And sometimes we can stop there and go, okay, like that's what a deacon does. They meet needs. But they did more than that. They supported the ministry of the word. So because they were doing what they could do, the apostles could focus on the continued ministry of the word and not be distracted by this, not something less important, just something different that needed to be dealt with. These seven were not the ones leading in the preaching of the word, but what they did allowed others to lead with the preaching of the word. And then finally, very importantly, they unified the body. Remember, it started as a complaint. There was division in the church. They appeared to be very unified at the end. I would even argue that even them meeting those physical needs of the widows was extremely important. I think this was a bigger issue, this disunity and this division that was occurring in the church. And so as we look at the example of those seven, the household of God, when served well by those seven, was flourishing through that verse seven. So what does this mean to our local household of God right here at Redeemer Bible Church? Well, the elders of Redeemer who are called to provide shepherding and oversight for the church have identified some very specific areas where we feel the church would be well served by having a deacon that's focused on that particular area. And because we've identified deacons for particular serve areas, these deacons do not, they, we don't have a deacon committee or a, or a deacon board. They don't meet together. They're just serving in these different areas. And we currently have six deacons that are officially serving as deacons in our church. So I'm going to put their pictures up here so you can see who they are. Um, Kurt Harris, and I've put the area where they focus on, Kurt Harris, in operations. It's kind of a big term, but if you think about when we were in the school, and we set up and tear down, tore down every Sunday, Kurt was leading that whole effort every week. He continues to do so many things behind the scenes here. Curtis Hampton is our deacon of outreach. Mike Carpenter, our deacon of facilities. Dustin Doyle, Deacon of Finance, Eric Kwiatkowski, Deacon of Benevolence, and Ryan Cronin, Special Projects. That's, this, that's my special ops guy. Yeah. I also want to mention another guy, Daniel Cornprobes. He just rolled off of serving as a deacon. He's been doing that for the last couple of years. He's been serving in benevolence uh, for us. He's no longer officially a deacon, but I wanted to mention him because he's served so well. These men have served well and are serving our church well mainly behind the scenes but by them doing what they're doing it allows the pastors and the elders to focus on oversight and shepherding of this church and as i've been preparing for this and studying for this and reflecting on where we are as deacons the lord's stirred a couple of things in my heart this week one of them is he's given me i think a renewed enthusiasm and an excitement for this role of deacon like when we do deacons well the church of God, the household of God will flourish. And then the second thing the Lord did to me was convict me. Because as I look as elders, I don't think that we have fully leveraged this role of deacon here like we can. And I don't think we fully leveraged those guys who have been serving as deacons well. We have some great examples, but 
I think we can get better. And so my commitment going forward out of here is to prayerfully and, and carefully think about how we can continue to lean into this role of deacon because when we do it well, the household of God will flourish. It's so good for us in so many ways. And so, you know, while the scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail about the role of deacon, I think this model helps us to understand a good bit about that role. But the Bible does give us a lot of detail about what the requirements are if you want to serve as a deacon. And so that's going to take us back to our primary text today in 1 Timothy. So let's go back to 1 Timothy 3 and again back to verse 8 where Paul is going to outline the requirements for a deacon. And before we go through that list, there's a couple of observations I want to make before we get to the specific list. The first one's this. Uh, two weeks ago, we went through the requirements for elders. This list is very similar. And so Brock did a great job of unpacking those requirements. So the, some of these I'm going to hit pretty quick because we've covered similar topics already. Um, the second thing, as you see this list of requirements, you're going to know they're very character-focused and not skill-focused. So as we think about who could be a good deacon, we can't start by saying, okay, let's see, who's got a, like a lot of tools in their garage? Or like who drives a pickup? Although that's very important. Um, Who's adept with a spreadsheet? No, we should be assessing them relative to the, the character qualifications found right here. And then the third thing I'll note before we get into this list is there's nothing unique about this list for deacons that shouldn't apply to every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Like, as you look at this list, don't check out, oh, that's for deacons, I don't want to be deacon. We should, there's something for all of us here. This applies to every single one of us. So let's, let's get our eyes on it. Verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. So dignified is kind of this banner word over the rest of the list. The rest of the list kind of supports this whole word of dignified. It really means respectable, or respected, well thought of. Um, not double-tongued, all right? So it's an interesting phrase. So we typically say not, not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. This is kind of all about integrity of speech. Not addicted to much wine. That kind of speaks for itself. Remember with elders, they were to be not a drunkard, similar. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Again, for the elders, they said not a lover of money, so similar to that. And then the next verse is, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What, like, so what's Paul saying with that one? Well, don't get too hung up on that word mystery. Sometimes they can sound like, what's he talking about there? See, Paul loves this word mystery. He uses it throughout his letters. And when Paul says the mystery of the faith, he's not talking about some secret thing that like, oh, if you get to a certain point, we'll reveal that to you and only a few of us know it. The mystery of the faith is simply this, that Jesus Christ came in fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to and talked about. So Moses and the prophets and the experiences of the Israelites, everything that was happening in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. And Paul is saying, hey, all that was pointing to Christ. That mystery because they didn't fully understand at the time, has now been revealed. And it's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. We live in an age where that mystery has been revealed. And so he's saying they must hold the mystery of the faith. They must, they must understand the faith. They must have a solid foundation of the faith and that they would be living it out. Not only knowing the faith, but living the faith because he says with a clear conscience. Would their conscience testify that they are living out what they profess that they believe? So a deacon should be somebody who is a person of the word, who knows the word and lives the word. He goes on in verse 10, and let them also be tested first. 
then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So we should be slow to appoint somebody who is going to be a deacon. We, we should take our time. We shouldn't rush into that. We should assess them over time. Do they meet these qualifications over time? We should spend time in prayer. We should, okay, so let's not rush into it. I'll talk about that in a minute. That is part of our process. All right, verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. All right, we're going we're gonna to spend a few minutes on this verse. We're going to spend some time on verse 11, and here's why. Because as elders of Redeemer, we believe this is not referring to the wives of deacons. It looks like Paul is saying, okay, I'm getting ready to give you some requirements for the wives of deacons. We believe that this is not referring to the wives of deacons, but instead to women who serve as deacons, right? And as a church, our convictional belief is that women can and should be serving in the role of deacon in the church. And Paul here is giving us qualifications for those women. Now, that's a big statement. And if you're sitting there with an ESV Bible, you should be saying, you got to help me understand that because verse 11 says, their wives likewise. So let me... Let me unpack this a little bit because this impacts directly how we will operate as a church. The first thing I want to highlight is that word that's translated wives. Their wives, it can also be translated women. That same word is translated both wives and women. If you're holding an ESV Bible, there's a note at the bottom of your page that says that very thing. If you're holding an NIV Bible in your hands, you could be like, what's the problem? Mine already says women instead of wives. So it can be translated both ways, which begs the question, which is the right translation? Okay, well, we've got some clues to what we believe is the right translation. And I want to share with you how we arrived at we believe that he's referring to women serving as deacons. And so a couple of clues to that. The first one is this. Paul uses that same word eight times in this letter. The first five times are all in chapter two. And all five of those times are undisputedly translated women. Every time, there's no dispute over that. It's clearly women in chapter 2. He uses it three times here in chapter 3. Two of those times, he refers to the qualification of an elder and deacon as being the husband of one wife. As Brock preached two weeks ago, we think the better translation is that can just as easily be translated woman. That a man serving as an elder or a person, yeah, a man serving as an elder or a deacon should be a one-woman man. So, Basically, seven of the eight times we think clearly should be translated women. Now, that's not a strong argument. That's just one clue. So you should be saying, I'm not convinced. You shouldn't be convinced by that. Clue number two, as we read the qualifications for elders, which preceded this, again, we preached on this two weeks ago, nowhere in that list of qualifications for elders does Paul call out the requirements for an elder's wife. But yet, in the same letter... And right after he lists qualifications for elders, he lists qualifications for deacons, he's calling out, is he calling out the qualifications for wives? It seems odd that he would call out the qualifications for the wives of a person serving as a servant in the church and not address that for those called to provide oversight for the church. It just seems like an inconsistency to translate that as wives there. Again, you're probably not convinced after just those two. Let me give you a third clue, and I think this is the most compelling. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a prohibition for women serving as deacons, okay? Three weeks ago, Brock preached 1 Timothy 2.12. 
In that verse, Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Paul clearly prohibits something there. And based on that verse, and based on the subsequent verses where Paul links that prohibition to the order of creation from Genesis, we conclude, and Brock taught, that we believe that the authoritative teaching and oversight of the church is reserved for elder qualified men in the church. But from what we know of the New Testament, deacons are not called to provide oversight for the church or to be the source of the primary teaching in the church. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament do we see any admonition for the church to be subject to or to submit to the deacons of the church, as we do see it call out for us to do that to the elders. So we see no reason to forbid what the Bible does not forbid. Final clue is this. As you read through the New Testament, you're going to see lots of examples of women serving in deacon-like roles. And I think one of the most compelling is Phoebe. Phoebe's called out by Paul in his letter to the Romans. That right at the end of the letter to the Romans, Paul is naming all kinds of people that have been serving, and he's noting them. And one of those is Phoebe. And he calls Phoebe in Romans 16 a servant of the church at Centre. And I know I've probably butchered the name of that church. Okay, he calls her a servant of the church at Century. That word servant can, is diakonos, can be translated deacon. In fact, some translations, the one you hold in your hand, may call her a deacon, a deacon of the church. We think that's a good translation. We think she was a deacon in that church. Here's why. Phoebe was in Corinth with Paul as he's writing this letter to the Romans. Clearly, because he's saying that she is. She's serving him there. He's getting ready to send her to Rome. She's likely going to be the one who carries this letter. Because he's saying, receive her. So Phoebe is serving the church in multiple places. And yet he calls her a servant of the church at Centre. He links her back to that particular church. Implying that she must have been officially commissioned an office holder, a deacon in that church. We believe Phoebe was clearly a deacon in that church. She happens to be serving elsewhere at the time. So that was a lot, okay? But given that reasonable Christ-loving people differ on this, I wanted to spend some time sharing with you why we arrived where we did, because it does impact the way we will operate as a church. So Paul then in verse 11, summarizes the requirements for women serving as deacons. He says they must be dignified. Again, he has repeated that word again, dignified, respected, well thought of. They should be not slanderers, okay? It's similar to what he said earlier about not being double-tongued, being sober-minded, all right? Sober-minded is not to be t under the influence of, of the, thought, the, the thinking process of the world, but instead primarily being in our minds, influenced by the word of God. And then finally, he says, faithful in all things. So just dependable and reliable and trustworthy in all things. And then, verse 12, he's going to shift to, he's just given us a word for the women, and now he's going to give us a word for the men. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So again, what's he doing here? He just said, the, the, we say the women, and now he's going to say to the husband of one wife, he's saying, he, you know, he started this with, okay, here's some requirements for the deacons, here's a word for the women, and here's a word for the men. And this word for the men is you're to be a one-woman man, and you be, better be caring for your household well if you're going to serve in this role. 
So that ends his list of requirements. And as we reflect on this list of requirements, we're reminded this applies to everybody in here, all of us. This isn't unique to deacons. But if we think about the role of deacons and we think about what they're called to do, how important is it, extremely important, that they be able to demonstrate these things in their lives given what they're being called to do? Let me give you an example. If a deacon is responsible for the the management and the distribution of a budget for benevolence, you don't want that person greedy for dishonest gain. Or if if a deacon is responsible for caring for people in in significant life circumstances and very sensitive life circumstances, you don't want that deacon to be somebody who is slanderous or double-tongued. And if you have a deacon that is working with and partnering with outside organizations on behalf of our church, you want to make sure that person is dignified and respectable. So what are the specific implications for us here in the household of God a Redeemer? Well, specifically, um, in keeping with Paul's instruction to let them be tested first, we have a pretty robust process here for identification and selection of deacons. It, it, it involves prayer, it involves an application, it involves interviews, it involves multiple discussions, it involves an assessment relative to these qualifications here, and it takes a lot of, a lot of time. It's months, if not a year, in, in, in that process. Um, we don't rush into it. And um, ultimately, a deacons are approved and commissioned by the elders of Redeemer. And along that process, there's constantly a checking in with the elders. Are we proceeding? Are we proceeding? Does this still make sense? We want to take our time. And you probably remember from the photos of the elders up there, we don't currently have a woman serving as a deacon. I expect that to change going forward as we continue to lean into this role, as we continue to leverage the roles of deacons in this church. You will see women as deacons. I will say there's actually a woman in this church right now who's praying actively about the possibility of serving as a deacon here. So Paul has listed out these requirements for it. And now he's going to finish with a word of encouragement. His last statement here is a word of encouragement for those who are going to serve as deacons. He said, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul feels a need to encourage those who are serving in these roles that could be thankless roles sometimes. And he says those who are serving well, not those who have been appointed to the role, but those who are serving well in the role. He gives two examples, and I call these the rewards. What are the rewards for serving as a deacon? The first one is gain a good standing for themselves. They will gain a good standing for themselves. Basically, it says, if a deacon is serving well in the household of God, they're going to enjoy a good reputation within the church body. And then he says, they will gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, by serving well in the role of a deacon, a deacon will grow in the confidence in their personal faith and walk with Jesus Christ. That's a great reward. Okay, not, oh, you'll gain in your, in your ability to lead, you're going to gain in your influence, you're going to gain in your skill sets, no, you're going to gain in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's not something bestowed upon them by the church, that's something that's a natural outflowing of them serving well as a deacon. But the deacons are not the only ones that get the rewards in this. The church gets a reward when deacons serve well in the church of God. And I want to go back to the statement I made at the beginning. When deacons serve well, as outlined in God's word, needs are going to get met. We know that. But the word of God is going to continue to get proclaimed, and the body will be unified. That's a beautiful thing. 
And I want to remind you that the elders have put together a position paper about elders and deacons, outlining where we stand on elders and deacons in the church. And you can find that by the QR code that's up here if you want to take a picture of that QR code, or you can go to our website or to our app. It's under resources, and once you go to resources, it's under articles. So again, website or app, resources, articles, boom, elders and deacons. We created that as a resource. You could have something to print out, take a look at, reflect on. Uh, we wanted you to have that. So I wanted to make you aware of that. Well, as we close our time together here today, um, and we just got done talking about servants, helpers in the church, I want to remind us our greatest example of a servant, our greatest example of a deacon is Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul says this in Philippians 2, 6 to 8. He says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, all of us have fallen short of God's expectations. Every single one of us in this room have sinned, fallen short. We've rebelled against God. And the just penalty for that rebellion is death and eternal separation from God in hell. The Bible is so clear about that. Eternity hangs in the balance. And we can do nothing to get ourselves out of that situation. We can't work our way out. We can't earn our way out. We can't put too, a bunch of good on our ledger to try and offset that. The Bible is clear there's only one way. God had to intervene. We needed a helper. We needed a savior. Someone to save us from the wrath of God that we justly deserve. And that savior is Jesus Christ. See, God sent his son to go die on a cross because he, somebody needed to pay that penalty and he did it for us. Christ was sinless and he paid the penalty that he didn't need to pay but he did it on our behalf. And the Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not all who get their lives together or like go to church or like do good deeds. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God says, I'm not going to give you a list of things to do when you do that. I'm going to welcome you into the family. You are forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, we are unified because he was a servant, because he went to the cross on our behalf we can have life everlasting with our God in heaven. That's what's at stake here. So as we reflect on that, as, as we reflect on Jesus dying for us as a servant to pay the penalty for our sin, um, I can think of no better way for us to take communion together to finish our time here together. And so when we take communion, we are remembering what Christ did for us on the cross. And we don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner, we want to pause and reflect and, and, and check our hearts here. We want to examine our hearts. And so communion here is open to all who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So before we take it together, I'm going to ask you just to take a minute or two right there in your seat. Just examine your heart. Pray to the Lord. Let's spend some time here reflecting on Christ's death on the cross. And then I'll come up and I'll lead us together through communion together.